Okay, here we go. Sacraments of healing, reconciliation, and anointing of the sick. Um, what we're going to find, uh, not as much with anointing of the sick, but certainly with reconciliation or penance. Um, they go, it goes by both names. We're going to find a lot of development in the practice of this sacrament, okay, throughout the history of the church. So um, I like to take the historical approach, you know. So from the, from the earliest times, the church understood that it had a role in the forgiveness of sins. But in the early church, the focus was really baptism, you know. So when, uh, when the uh, catechumens are going to be baptized at the Easter Vigil this year, all of their sins will be wiped out. So they don't have to go to confession until you know, they need to go to confession after baptism. But baptism completely forgives sin, okay? But what happened was then all of a sudden the early Christians were like, well, what do we do with people who apostatize, okay? So apostasy meaning rejecting the faith because, you know, they, again, second century, they get caught practicing their faith, you know, by the Romans or the Romans try to force them to, you know, give a pinch of incense to one of the Roman gods because Christianity was illegal. And so the Christian is like, yeah, I don't want to die. Sure. And so they do it, which is apostasy and idolatry. Um, and it's a grave sin, right? Um, as well as other grave sins that happen. You know, priests did the same thing. I mean, some of the people were willing to die, be burned alive, eaten alive, skinned alive, et cetera, et cetera, all these horrible things. But you know, a lot of people don't want to go through that. And so they, you know, they said, fine, whatever. And, you know, we would look at that in modern terms and say, well, they were coerced. You know, clearly that's not a free act. It's, it's probably not even a mortal sin. Um, it would be considered heroic to, you know, but, um, but you know, depending on, on the circumstances and everything else. Um, However, back in the, early, in the early church, this is what they were dealing with, is they were trying to figure out, all right, what do we do with the people who gravely sin? And apostasy was a big one, the other ones being murder, uh, adultery, bestiality. Those are kind of like the big ones. Um, and so the church then was like, well, okay, well, maybe we can, we can forgive their, their sins once after baptism. So they allowed for a one-time forgiveness of sins following baptism before death. Um, and what happened is by the third century, um, this began to get sort of a little bit more formalized. So what would happen is the, the penitent, if they wanted forgiveness, if they brought themselves forward, they'd come forward to the bishop, they would confess their sins to the bishop, the bishop would actually assign them a penance to be done first, and then after the penance was completed, they would be forgiven. So it was kind of backward, well, not backward, but, but it was juxtaposed to what we do today. So first they would be given penance, and this penance could be, it could, it could be from you know, a few weeks to a few years, um, and even longer, depending on how bad the sin was, okay? Um, now, not a lot of people did it, though, because it was a public thing. You had to do stuff publicly. Um, you know, you had to, um, you know, you, you had to beg for forgiveness publicly. You had to do things like, you know, wear the whole sackcloth and, and do the ashes thing and, and be outside begging for forgiveness. And so, um, you know, people just, oh, I think I have a list of things here. Um, yeah, so some of the penances would be like, you couldn't, you had to stay away from public amusements, you know, you were forbidden to hold public office, uh, you were barred from the clergy, you had to abstain from marital intercourse during the entire penitential period, which could last up to 20 or 30 years. Wow. Yeah, so there weren't a lot of takers on this, and um, that's the short... That's kind of the long and short of it. Um, so the, this debate, you know, kind of was going on throughout the church. Can, can a person be forgiven? The, the church decided, yes, they can, but it's got to be this 
for these grave sins. You know, it's got to be this, this really arduous practice of, of penance first, then they could present themselves to the bishop. And, you know, and, and the, worst, the worst sins were considered bestiality or abortion. Um, and then, you know, the other grave sins, which we all know. Um, Yeah, the bishop generally, um, it would, and then the, each person would be assigned a specific penance. They'd have to do that penance. Some of that obviously would be public. Some of it would be private. Um, it, just, it just depended. And then after they completed their penance, they were reconciled to God and the church, okay? Um, but they could only do it once. So, <laughs> so if you thought you were going to do one of these again, take your pick um, then or you know if you if you even thought well I, I can't even do that so what would happen is uh, people decided and it was a council of Nicaea that that approved this single opportunity for forgiveness um, and this period is called canonical penance um, penance Remember, canonical just means sort of a list, all right? Um, so as, as, the, as the practice of this sort of went along, you know, there became sort of routine uh, lists of sort of penances that, that people would have to do. Um, and uh, so there were rules or there were canons that were governing this whole thing. Um, the problem is that people didn't do it or they waited they just didn't they didn't take communion and they waited until the end of their lives and then they're like okay I did all these sins I'm really sorry I'm gonna die in you know pretty soon anyway so might as well enroll in the order of penitence you know um, or they they just put off baptism till the end of their life and they just, they became a catechumen and they were just in the process of becoming Catholic and they're like, I could never do it. I could, because I could never stay without sin the rest of my life. So I'll wait and I'll wait until right on my deathbed, be baptized. Psh, I'm good to go right into heaven. Um, oh, here's some more uh, penances. I got some more lists. So wear sackcloth made of goat hair, chains, rags, cut short their hair sprinkle themselves with ashes, increased amounts of prayer, eating and sleeping less, giving alms, refrain from marital relations, um, and of course not allowed to communion. So uh, basically this didn't last very long. Well, it lasted, but people didn't do it. So, <laughs> so there was this process whereby people could have their sins forgiven. All right, and the continuum we need to see is that the church understood that it had the authority to forgive sin, okay? And it, it believed it had this because of what Jesus told the apostles. He told the apostles they had the, for, the, the authority to forgive sin. So the church always understood that. And the first way in which the church kind of put this together as a ritual was this. And just through pastoral practice, the church realized, yeah, this isn't really working. People aren't doing it. Um, however, remember also that we're in the 4th and 5th centuries, so the 400s, 300s, 400s A.D. Rome is collapsing. Europe begins to collapse. We can never forget when we're looking at all of this history, the, the chaos that is ensuing in Europe. Because it very much then has to do with, well, why did the church take so long to change it if it wasn't that effective? Or it, wasn't, it was effective, I guess, if people did it, but they weren't really doing it. So... Why does it take so long for the church to, to change things? There's a couple of reasons why that is. Um, but, but one of the reasons in, in the early church has to do with just the chaos. All right. And, and remember, there's no email. There's no phone calls. If you want to talk to bishops in France, you know, or, or the, you know, Gaul or, or, you know, the Germanic regions, number one, you've got to avoid all of the um, you know, the vandals and the, all of the barbarians that are seeking to kill you. 
to see if you can get to the monasteries to communicate with the bishops and, and you know, the clerics that are there. I mean, it's just chaos. It's hard to get stuff done. So things move very, very slowly. But what happened is after the continent is basically overrun with the barbarians, you know, the good old Germans always creating chaos in the world, um, not just the Germans, but um, so it's kind of fallen, you know, Europe has fallen, but then these barbarians begin to settle there. And uh, what happens is the, the Irish monks come over uh, from, the, from the islands um, and they begin to adapt the practice of penance, all right, because they're, they're you know, going around and preaching and, and also trying to convert these barbarians. And it's pretty hard to explain to a bunch of barbarians about, you know, or enrolling in the order of catechumens and waiting years to become, to become Catholic and everything else. So some of this is just sort of how to expedite the process of people getting their sins forgiven. But they were breaking the rules, which is interesting. They're breaking the rules. Number one, priests are doing it regularly, but also they're doing this frequent kind of confession. They're just allowing people to go to confession and they're absolving them of their sins. And so the monks then composed books containing lists of sins and then appropriate penances for each of those sins. And uh, it became very, very popular by the 6th century, by the 500s. it was actually, though, the, the Council of Toledo in 589 that actually tried to abolish the practice. So there was, again, there's just one of those times in the church where there's huge tensions. You got all these Irish monks doing whatever the heck they want to do, you know, because Irish, Irishmen do that. Um, <laughs> they do. Um, they have a long history of just doing their own thing. So they come into the continent, and this was a, actually a really great innovation. But it was an innovation. They're breaking the rules. And then the bishops at the Council of Toledo are like, no, we've got to get rid of it. But they didn't win. All right? They couldn't get enough, enough support from all of the bishops. So it continued. Um, and then finally in 650, at the Council of Chalon in France, uh, they approved confession to priests. Penances still could be lengthy and still very severe. All right? But we don't... So it takes 600 years, ah, less than that, you know, but about 600 years until the church actually has confession directly to priests. Because before it's sort of this, it's, it's a little bit more of a communal thing. Like if you sinned, everyone was going to know about it. And based on the length of your penance, they could probably guess what you did, you know, or, or how bad it was. I mean, it was kind of a humiliating practice, pretty dehumanizing, really. Um, then again, it's a different time, so it's difficult to judge our, you know, on our standards of, of concepts of human rights and all the rest. It's kind of hard to judge people from centuries ago. Um, so this continues, uh, 8th century, um, there you get this recommended confession for grave sins before the reception of communion. Um, and in the, at the 4th Lateran Council, then you finally get a decree that everyone must confess their serious sins to a priest uh, within one year. That still is on the books. Um, In 1215, the practice of repeated private confession to priests became an official sacrament in Western Christianity. So it wasn't really declared a sacrament. Um, there There wasn't really an official list of sacraments, like the seven sacraments, until Peter Lombard. Um... Now, Peter Lombard had a famous book called His Sentences, where he, he commented on, on all kinds of different, you know, uh, moral issues, scripture, etc. But um, it was Peter Lombard who, who came up with the list and said, these are the seven sacraments of the church. But there wasn't a list until then. I mean, there were sacraments, but a lot of things were sacraments. Um, now we sort of split them into sacraments and sacramentals. You know, you wear a medal that's blessed, that's a sacramental, it's not a sacrament, you know. But the, the church wasn't, up until then, the church uh, wasn't real sort of narrow in its understanding of the, the operation of grace, like sacramental grace versus actual grace and all of those things. So it actually took until the 12, 
1200s. Um, and by 1000, absolution is given prior to penance. So it took a thousand years until people could, could be forgiven before they performed their penance, which is really interesting if you consider, like, I mean, the penances I give are like, do three Hail Marys, you know, it's just not very hard. But back, back in the day, I mean, there were hard penances, I mean, really, really hard penances, and usually for a thousand years, for half of our history, you had to do your penance before you could get absolution. And then in the, around the year 1000, that flipped, okay? So that absolution is given first, and then go and do your penance. Um, which, it also kind of makes sense that the penances got lighter, because, I mean, if you've already forgiven people for their sins, and then you're like, abstain from marital relations for, you know, six months, people are going to be like, I'm already forgiven, you know? I'll just confess that the next time, you know? Uh, so, um, so it makes it kind of makes sense why just sort of organically then penances are are going to probably get a little lighter because you can't hold people to it. Whereas before it was sort of coercive, you know, I'll give you forgiveness, but not until you've done these penances. Um, if people actually did them, you know, and didn't lie about it, because lying is a lesser sin anyway. Um, okay. Now. Um, one of the things that, that did change was uh, between, there was an evolution of the words of absolution from asking God to forgive the sinner to uh, the priest actually saying the words, I absolve you, ego te absolvo. And I was just looking up exactly, because there's a long um, priest joke about actually how long the uh, prayer of absolution is. God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace, and I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We call it the interminable formula because um, it's so long, especially when you're hearing a lot of confessions. So when you're, <laughs> when you're hearing little kids' confessions, you know, and it's... Uh, it's like three hours of them, or like when I was when I was at a parish with a school. I mean, we had what from second grade through eighth grade. I mean, that was I don't know three hundred kids, three hundred fifty kids. So you know, you're getting dizzy and glassy eyed and everything else. So saying that formula over and over and over. Well, technically, all I have to say is I absolve you of your sins. Boom. <laughs> That's all I have to say. So technically, that's the formula, all right? That's the form. That's the words. I absolve you of your sins. Um, I being Jesus in persona Christi. It's Jesus forgiving sins through the priest. It's not John forgiving sins. Um, but, you know, there's a longer formula. Sometimes if, if in, in other situations where the line is really, really long, I'll shorten it um, because of just just expediting things. Um, but that, that's the form. The matter of the, the stuff, um, the stuff is you have to have sins. You have to be sorry. Um, you have to have an, a purpose of amendment. And then, of course, you do your penance. Um, but essentially, the, you need to have sins. Um, and um, one, of the, one of the debates then through scholasticism, now anytime I say scholasticism, I'm generally talking about St. Thomas Aquinas, but it's more than him. Um, but the, the debates during, during the 1200s has to do with the distinction between mortal and venial sin. So for it to be a mortal sin, uh, a person has to commit the sin, I mean, it has to be a sin, it has to be wrong, um, they have to commit it with knowledge, premeditation, which involved a complete rejection of God. And if the, all of that were true and the person were run unrepentant, they would, of course, be punished forever in hell. Whereas other sins were less serious, um, were less serious sins. And then there was this distinction that came up between imperfect and perfect contrition. Right? So being sorry for your sins. Uh, 
Perfect contrition means you're sorry for the right reason, which is because you love God. Imperfect contrition is generally you're sorry because you're afraid you're going to go to hell. So it's, it's uh, you know, there's different motivations for going to confession. You know, some people go to confession because they're afraid of hell. And they're not necessarily completely sorry for it, like as they ought to be. So it's imperfect. But if you're, if you're sorry for it to the degree that you ought to be, and because of your love for God and desiring, you know, to, to reconcile with him, as long as you have the intention of going to confession as soon as possible, as soon as you manifest that contrition, it's already forgiven, which is interesting. And that is in the catechism. Um, just for those of you listening at home, that is... Uh, 1452, perfect and imperfect contrition. Perfect contrition also, you know, forgives venial sins. Lots of things forgive venial sin. So if you're sorry for your venial sins because of your love for God, it's, they're forgiven. If you say in our Father uh, because of your venial sins or as penance for your venial sins, it's forgiven. Um, St. Thomas even mentions that uh, venial sins can be forgiven with, a, uh, you know, with blessing yourself with holy water. It just takes an act of penance, an act of charity, manifested though, you know, being sorry for those sins. However, um, so, you know, grave sins, just like in the early church, the church always believed that grave sins had to be taken to the church, right? You note that there's a continuum there. The grave sins to be forgiven after baptism, the grave sins needed to be taken first to the bishop and then to the priests, right? Um, so this is the continuous line. Um, one of the things that will happen from time to time is uh, people will come in and they'll say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I don't have any sins. I just want the grace of the sacrament." To which I say, get out. <laughs> I say it nicer than that, but essentially get out. The grace you need is not the grace that comes from healing the breach between yourself and God and the community, because there is no breach. So, okay, think of it this way. The words, ego te abs I absolve you, I absolve you, okay. If you don't have sins, I can say these words, but sins are not being forgiven because there's no sins. It's this act, it's this action, the forgiving of sins and the sins being remitted. It's, it's that action which brings about the grace. If you don't have sins, you're not going to get the grace of the sacrament because you're not celebrating the sacrament. Because you can't celebrate the sacrament if you, if you don't have sins. It's like trying to celebrate the Holy Communion without bread and wine. You just say, well, let's, I just want to celebrate the grace of the sacrament. Well, you need to have Mass. Well, I, I didn't bring any bread and wine. Can I just have the grace of the sacrament? It's ridiculous, right? You would never, it doesn't make any sense. Um, this is one of those older time kind of practices because when people were sort of told, go to confession every single week, you know, sometimes they didn't have sins, but they would go to confession um, but if you don't have sins, you, you don't have a sacrament, and therefore you can't, there's no grace that's, that's being manifest. If you're not sorry for your sins, it's not a sacrament. I've had that before. You know, somebody comes in and um, it's not common. I think I've had it maybe twice, but they, you know, come in and, and you can kind of tell, like, there's something off. And are you sorry for your sins? No. Well, <laughs> well, okay, well, why are you here? What's kind of, you know, they're just, somebody told them to go. You'll, you'll often see this with teenagers. <laughs> My mom forced me to go. Well, are you sorry? You know, and you kind of try to, because, you know, most people are sorry when they know they did something wrong. So you can generally get it out of them, you know, that they are, in fact, sorry. But sometimes they need to go away and think about it and then come back. Um, there also needs to be a firm purpose of amendment. You have to really intend not to commit the sin again. You can't just come in and, because this is, this is what a lot of times people, non-Catholics, believe about 
about the practice of the sacrament is, well, Catholics can do whatever they want, then they can just go to confession and be forgiven. Well, no, that's a whole other sin. It's called presumption. It's a sin of presumption. You can't, just, you can't, like, you can't be a serial adulterer and, you know, and have, I've had this. Oh, I've had this. Don't worry, I won't, I won't tell. It's not you. I just remember. It's just, it's in the ether somewhere, you know. Um, but it's happened before where somebody confesses that they're committing adultery, you know. And, the, and one of the things I'll ask is, is that relationship over? You know, because they're married. It's not just fornication. They're having sex out of marriage. They're married. Have you cut it off with, no, I haven't. So are you going to do this again? Well, yeah, probably. No. <laughs> Go and end it and then come back. Yeah, don't, don't pretend like this thing is over. And, and you're going to go right back to that relationship and do it over, you know, commit adultery again and maintain this relationship, you know, uh, behind the back of, of your wife and, and think you can give. No, that doesn't work that way. End the relationship. Um, the, the thing that's interesting, uh, Trent, uh, Trent talked, there's a lot of power given to a priest in confession um, to discern. I, I believe Trent refers to the the role of the priest as judge and I think king. I think it's judge and king. It's something like that. But, but basically, you know, the priest has a lot of authority to say no. Because remember what Jesus said, I give you authority to bind and loose sin. So you can forgive sin, but you can also not forgive it if the conditions are there. Now, normally that doesn't happen because there's a presumption that a person is sorry if they come in. And, and that is my experience, that, you know, the vast majority of people are really sorry for their sins. But they don't necessarily know how to change their behavior. So when they're trying to manifest a firm purpose of amendment, I'm not going to do it again, they don't necessarily know, obviously, as I just gave you the example, they don't necessarily know how to avoid that again. Now, that's different than... A, a habitual sin, like the most frequent, you know, habitual sin that's confessed is, is masturbation. So something like that, where a person can foresee that they may, they may end up committing that sin again, that's different than actually having a situation in which they're, you know, they're committing adultery, they're in this relationship. It's the same thing if, if two people are living together and they're not married and, uh, you know, one comes in and confesses fornication. They're, you know, they're, they're not sleeping in separate rooms. Um, and so then you say, well, how are you going to avoid this sin in the future? I mean, are you and your boyfriend going to sleep in separate bedrooms? Are you going to, are you both committed to this? Is it just you? Um, and if they're, if they're really not able to separate, then, then it calls into question really whether they can avoid the sin, in which case they probably shouldn't go to confession and therefore shouldn't go to communion because they can't be forgiven of their sins. Does that make sense? So you, you have to, you can't just sort of be like, yeah, I'm really sorry, I want to be forgiven, then you get forgiven, but you, you go right back to it. Um, um, now, when you're, when you're faced with things like addiction and stuff like that, arguably it's probably not even a mortal sin because of the mitigation of a person's free will. But that's a whole other issue, which I think I already covered in a previous class. Um, so let me think here. Wanted to get to a few. Um, oh, how often should you go to confession? This is fascinating. Um, so, <laughs> all right, 1457. Uh, this is from Council of Trent and Code of Canon Law. Um, after having attain the age of discretion. You don't start going to confession until you're, you reach the age of discretion, knowing right from wrong, which is second grade-ish, right? Seventh or eighth grade, or seven, seven or eight years old. Um, after reaching the age of discretion, each of the faithful is bound by an obligation faithfully to confess serious sins at least once a year. Okay. So, then... So how often do you have to go to confession? So 
Now read again. Each of the faithful is bound by an obligation faithfully to confess serious sins at least once a year. If you don't, if you don't have a mortal sin, unfortunately, oftentimes in the catechism, they'll, they'll switch their words and they don't use just mortal sin specifically. Um, but if you commit a mortal sin, you need to confess that at least once a year. Um, if you don't confess, if you don't commit a mortal sin, you don't have to go to confession because venial sins can be uh, confessed directly to God. Um, and also they're wiped away by going to Holy Communion. They're wiped away at the penitential rite. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. They're wiped away there. All kinds of ways that they're, they're, they're remitted. Okay, so a person really only has to go if they commit a mortal sin. However, next paragraph. Without being strictly necessary, which is what I just said, confession of everyday faults, venial sins. Oh, I do it this way because uh, it's a habit. In Italy, their quotation marks are like this. They're not like this. So <laughs> when you see quotation, they're like this. <laughs> instead, of, instead of sentences like that, they're, uh, they're actually like this. So without being strictly necessary, <laughs> confession of, of venial sins is strongly recommended by the church. Confession. Indeed, regular confession of our venial sins helps us to form our conscience, fight against evil tendencies, and, let, and lets ourselves be, you know, to be healed by Christ and uh, progress in the life of the Spirit. So, how often do you, do you have to go to confession? Have to go to confession? Only if you commit a mortal sin do you have to go to confession once a year at least. Now, if you commit a mortal sin, you can't then go to Holy Communion. But you don't have to go to confession like right away, although that would be a good thing. But if you, if you, are, if you do have a perfect act of contrition, look, there are places in the world where priests are so rare that you know, people only see a priest every few months. So if they commit a mortal sin, and if they, if they manifest a perfect um, you know, act of, of contrition, they or penitent, or what's the right word? Is that it? Perfect... Uh, Perfect contrition. If they manifest or, or they make an act of perfect contrition, if they manifest perfect contrition, right, all the right reasons for the love of God, um, they're already forgiven, and they, they say, well, I'm going to go to confession as soon as I can. Well, that could be months, you know, for some people. Um, for those of us here, however, uh, in the United States, we don't generally have that problem. So, you know, a week or so, you should probably get to confession. What if I don't like my priest? Well, too bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's harder out here, right? I mean, back down in Phoenix, a lot of people don't like to go to their parish priest because they're afraid their parish priest, you know, he knows me and I don't want him to think bad of me or something like that. Or, um, which I can assure, at least in my, in my situation, I, that never, I just never think that way. I just never think that way. I mean, I, I think it's amazing that somebody would, would entrust me, even though I don't necessarily know who they are, um, you know, that they would entrust me with that. That's a very sacred thing. And it's, to me, it's just amazing that people, you know, want the Lord's forgiveness and they're going to humble themselves to, to make use of the sacrament. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's important, you know, you, you want to maybe feel comfortable with the priest, so, but, you know, then you're going to have to drive. Um, <laughs> down in the city it's a little harder okay so how often do you go to confession um, some of the difficulties with going to I, I was in a parish where I had confession twice a day I, I talked about this the other week and so I won't rehash it too much but, and I would have people who would go every day and, and then I, I started saying look I'm not going to hear your confession every day um because they had a scrupulous conscience and they weren't, they generally weren't mortal sins. I mean, I could tell, I couldn't tell them that necessarily because I can't, um, I can't discern for them the, the quality of their sins, but you can tell if, if it's not, uh, 
if the matter of the sin is not, is not grave, you know, then it, it, it can't be a mortal sin. It has to be grave matter, freely chosen and, you know, fully understood, the three requirements. So if it's not grave matter, it can't be a mortal sin. And then there's other mitigating factors why it wouldn't be a mortal sin. But what you have with a scrupulous conscience, uh, a person with a scrupulous conscience has an inability to make that judgment over mortal and venial sin. They have no ability. They think, so therefore, to be on the safe side, everything's a mortal sin for them, and they need to confess it every day. Obviously, there's a lot of anxiety issues and, 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 and other psychological issues that go into it. But the unfortunate thing is, you know, you can tell them, look, this isn't good for you. You have a scrupulous conscience. I'll work with you on it. Um, but... I'm, I'm only going to hear your confession once a week or something like that. Um, so you can, try, you can try to work with them. But as soon as you stay, say that stuff, they think you're just a laxist. And then they just go and find some other priest who's a rigorist who will, you know, punish them and make them feel bad for their sins. Um, <laughs> I wasn't generally very good at that. So thankfully. Um, so what I recommend, I, I do recommend... And when I say when I recommend, I'm not telling you what's in the book. I'm telling you what I just recommend. It, it really depends on the person. But, you know, if you commit a mortal sin, go to confession as soon as you can. But try to manifest that, that perfect contrition. You know, think about it. You know, be sorry for it. Try to be sorry because of your love for God and your desire to, to be healed by him. Um, and then try to get to confession as soon as you can. If you don't have a mortal sin, or if you're not sure, by the way, if you're not sure if it's a mortal sin, it's not a mortal sin. So by truck driver back, isn't a mortal sin? No. Well, cursing isn't even necessarily a sin. Uh, well, cursing would be. Prof profanity is a sin, but uh, vulgarity isn't necessarily a sin, depending on how it's used. So what's, what's amazing is... You know, some people say GD until the, the cows come home, and they don't think anything of it. But if they drop the F-bomb, they're like, oh, my gosh. It's actually the converse. Drop as many F-bombs as you want. It's better than saying God, you know, or Jesus or something else, because that's profanity. That's taking something sacred and profaning it. Okay? Vulgarity is not strictly sinful. If you use it, like the F, you know, the, the F word can be used in, as a noun and an adjective and a verb and a, you know, if you use it in anger towards somebody, okay, well now we're talking about sin, okay? And it could even rise to the level of, of mortal sin depending on who it is, the context, the circumstances, and the rest. It could. I mean, thinking, I'm thinking of a child, I'm thinking of verbal abuse, I'm thinking of that, okay? Um, or not just a child, I mean, even an adult. I mean, real verbal abuse is real abuse, and that, you know, um, that, that could very well be a mortal sin. But getting exasperated and dropping the F-bomb because you, you hammered your finger is probably not even a sin. Maybe a venial sin, you know, but, but it's... So we, in our culture, we have it backward. I mean, you can watch TV, and they're using, they're using profanity all the time. But they won't use vulgarity. It's, it's just interesting how our, our culture has that so twisted. Um, there's a, one of the worst cuss words in, I'm going to get it wrong because I'm bad at French. Um, one of the worst cuss words in, uh, in Canada is uh, tabernacle, which means tabernacle. But it's used in Canada because they've, they've, they've become so... Uh, uh, so secularized that they use, they know exactly what they're doing. They're taking something sacred and they're profaning it. And it's one of the worst profanities that's used in Canada. The tabernacle is where Jesus resides, right? That's true profanity. And that is an offense against, I mean, that's, that's high on the list, right? That's number two. It's number two on the top ten list. The top three are the worst. And it's amazing, too, because the top three are confessed the least. And they're the worst. You know, right? Idolatry, putting anything before God, taking God's name in vain, and missing Mass on Sunday. Mortal sins. Horrible. Horrible sins. 
Hardly ever confessed. People are confessing, dropping the F-bomb. I'm like, so, so it's just interesting how, how this stuff is, you know, is, uh, is out there that people have these mis- misconceptions. And I'm not saying using vulgarity can't be sinful. You know, it's probably venially sinful or something. But, you know, it's, it's pretty mild relative to using something sacred and profaning it. That's, that's horrible. That's horrible. Um, okay, so uh, let me finish this up. There's the uh, anointing is, isn't as long. Um, currently, there are three forms of the rite of penance. There's three ways to do it. Okay, remember we were talking about canonical penance, where you got to do all the bad stuff for, you know, decades. <laughs> we don't have that anymore. And then, and then you have sort of the monks, the Irish monks, you know, guiding the people, and there, there's that thing. And that evolves into what we have now, um, which is called auric- auricular penance, one-on-one. Okay? There's three rituals. There's, uh, the first one is the normal one. Um, I believe this is how you spell it, auricular penance. One-on-one, in the box or face-to-face, doesn't matter. Walking along the street if you want, doesn't matter. Um, This one, right two, is a communal celebration, like like Liturgy of the Word, and then auricular penance. So... Uh, the communion celebration is everybody gets together, we sing some songs, we hear some scripture, you get a homily, everybody does the act of contrition together, then you go to the box and confess your sins individually, get an individual penance and absolution. The right three is forbidden except for, with, except for an emergency or special permission from the bishop. And right three is uh, communal absolution. Now, what's amazing about this is, even in our own diocese, there's been all kinds of abuses with especially right to. Communal absolution is, um, we're all going off to war, we're being deployed, ego te absolvo. However, if you get that, you still, if you survive and you come back, you have to tell the priest what your sins were. You still are bound to do that. Even though you're forgiven, you're still bound to tell the priest. Um, what, what, we've, what we saw, especially in the 80s and 90s, is priests, because, you know, that's what they do, is they break the rules, um, is they would combine this kind of stuff. So you'd write two and three, so you'd have this communal celebration. And then there was one thing that these priests were doing in Phoenix where, like, all the penitents would come forward and confess their sins to the priest, but they, yeah, but like, like they'd be lined up or something, but way too close. But yeah, out loud, they confess their sins to the priest individually. And then they would go back to their seats. And then all the priests would like raise their hands and recite the prayer of absolution together. Totally forbidden. Can't do it. Never could do it. Totally wrong. But they were doing it. Um, my first pastor... My first pastor when I was ordained did this. He did this all the time. And so it came time for Advent, and he's like, okay, we're going to do communal penance, and this is how we do it. You're going to like it. And he told me, and I'm like, you can't do it. He was so mad at me. He was yelling at me. He was somewhat ill-tempered. And uh, little, he was a little guy, too. But anyway, um, so he's like, well, show me where it says that. I'm like, all right, 2000. What was it? It was uh, 1998 or something. There was a circular letter of penance. Anyway, here it is. He was mad. Um, can't do it. Um, so the, uh, one of the other things, too, people have a right to go anonymously to confession. They do not have a right to go face-to-face. So this is why I, I made sure to, to get the, the confessional you know, with the wall, because... Everyone has a right to be anonymous, and a priest must provide or should do the best he can to provide so that people can go to confession and be anonymous. 
That's very, very important. But, um, but nobody has a right to go face to face. So for instance, in our confession, there's not a lot of room anyway, admittedly, but you know, some confessionals you have, uh, you have sort of a split wall and then they can come around. Like at St. Francis, it's that way. It's a, um, it's a split wall. So you can go, like I sit here and there's a kneeler with a screen. So you can just like sit, kneel there if you wanna be anonymous or you can sit and then go face to face. Um, you know, I don't think pre, I've never heard of a priest denying somebody the ability to go face to face. The the point I'm trying to make is that uh, priests are to make sure it's provided for the people that they can go anonymously. All right, it's 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 something that a priest owes the people so that um, they can be behind the screen or whatever. And and you know you feel, and I've done I've had it. Uh, the last parish I was at, we had confessions just about every day. And uh, 90% of the people went behind the screen. They could do either. And like 90% of them went behind the screen. Okay, questions about penance? Reconciliation. It was perfectly clear. Carol. Okay. Yeah, the old Easter, so the question is about having to go to confession during Easter time. That's the old Easter duty, to receive, to receive penance and Holy Communion at least once during the Easter season. I don't think that's technically on the books. I think what you have technically on the books is you need to confess your mortal sins at least once a year. I think that's the case. I, so I, I don't know if that was, so this is what happens is a lot of times, um, things become the norm because of popular piety or because a region of priests, like I, like I wrote about the whole holding hands during the Our Father and the, and the bulletin this last week. When we moved out from Wisconsin, that was like a big deal. Like we're like, what in the heck are people doing, you know? But everyone did it. Everyone did it. It was a thing, you know? And it was kind of weird if you didn't do it um, for a long time. Um, and that's, that's an example of something becoming, but I think that the Easter duty, so I'm just going to go on record and say that I don't think it's on the books, so to speak, as still a rule. I'm pretty sure it's not, but it may have been, I think it may have been more than just a, 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 a pious practice. I think it, I think it was something that, uh, because there are two things that happen in the church. One, not just wanting people to confess their mortal sins. But for the longest time, people didn't receive communion frequently. Once you got to the Middle Ages and you started having people kneeling and then receiving on the tongue and all of this stuff, then um, and, and with the rise of, of actually exposition and adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, the reason that came about was because people felt so unworthy to receive Holy Communion that the focus became, became you know, adoring the sacrament uh, with the elevations, you have the bells. The whole reason we have bells, um, it's to get people's attention so that they can worship and adore the, the Eucharist because many people wouldn't even receive because they felt so unworthy. And then the church had to actually mandate, you got to receive at least once a year because people weren't even receiving because they didn't feel worthy enough. Now, the reason why I don't think that's really on the books is we don't really have that problem anymore. You know, now we have sort of the converse, which is maybe y'all shouldn't be receiving you know, maybe there's some of you should refrain. Um, and and that, that's what you've seen, I think, in the last 30 years, 40 years, is the presumption is everybody gets to receive, you know, even non-Catholics who, who are forbidden from receiving. Um, so, good question. I don't think I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think I think actually what was mandated was that people needed to receive communion at least once a year, and if you're going to receive communion once a year, you needed to go to confession. So that's why you would have both attached to it. But I think it actually, if I remember historically, it was really about trying to get people that le look. If you're going to receive once, at least receive in the Easter season. 
Because now you think about it and you think, well, why, you know, why would you need to mandate people receive at least? Because the presumption is that they're all going to Mass every Sunday. So, so this is a time when everybody knows you have to go to Mass every Sunday. It's a mortal sin. So everybody goes to Mass on Sunday. So why would, in those terms, why would you have to mandate, or in that time frame and with that mindset, why would you have to mandate to receive Holy Communion? It's because so many people wouldn't receive. Or they were maybe reluctant to confess their sins, and so it was a way to get them to, to confess their sins. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, so the other sacrament of healing is the anointing of the sick. There, there's one really interesting facet about this, I think. Um, but basically, um, uh, basically from the beginning, you know, the church has practiced this. You have, for, for the letter, letter to James, um, this is a part of the ritual, actually. Um, if there are people sick among you, let them send for the priests of the church and let the priests pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick persons and the Lord will raise them up. If they have committed any sins, their sins will be forgiven them. It's like one of the only scripture passages I've memorized because I've done the sacrament so many times. Um, that's right from scripture. Send for the priest of the church if you're sick, anoint them with oil, and their sins will be forgiven. That's right in scripture. So the fact that it's in the letter to James means they were doing it, right? Because that's a directive in one of the letters to do it. So the church is already practicing this in, in the hundreds, you know, the 100s. So right after Christ's ascension, the church is practicing anointing of the sick. Um, and the, the other thing, the reason why only priests or bishops, anytime I say only priests can do that, I also mean bishops because they have the fullness of the priesthood. But the reason why deacons can't anoint or lay people can't anoint is because of the understanding um, that anointing um, also is connected with the forgiveness of sins. That's why. And nobody but, but priests or bishops can forgive sins in the name of Christ. I mean, it would be a great help if deacons could anoint because that's, that's one of the, especially if you're in a parish with, with, a, with a hospital right next door, I mean, wow, that's, it takes a lot of time out of your day. But, you know, because of what we believe and what we teach and, and, and what we already have in divine revelation, so an interesting thing about that then is that for the longest time, anointing of the sick was, was really about um, anointing before death. You know? And some people, I, I, <laughs> I've shown up at hospital rooms and the person is still relatively coherent and they'll say, no, <laughs> no, I don't want to see a priest. Because they're afraid, you know, if the priest anoints them, I'm thinking, why don't, come on, man, look at you. Speed it up. You don't want to sit around. Go. Oh, I'm ready. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> but yeah, people, people are connected so much to death, you know. Father comes and anoints us. It's now, uh, after Vatican II, the church said, well, really, it's, a, you know, the fuller understanding. Because what Vatican II did is, you know, remember, I, I talked about this previously, that because of the, the increased access to historical records and books, that ushered in a lot of these changes to the sacraments in, in, in Vatican II. And that whole historical process was, was at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So what happened is we began to, to find all these texts and all these books, and they were, they were brought together, and we're like, wait a second, what we've been doing for the last 500 years since Trent, doesn't look a whole lot like what they were doing in the early church. And so the church wanted to go back and, and you know, recover uh, a lot of these practices that, because, I mean, if, if the early church practiced this stuff, um, there's a certain veracity to it. Now, thank goodness we didn't recover the original practice of the sacrament of penance, you know, thank <laughs> Thank goodness we said, no, that was a good development. We'll leave that one alone. Uh, but some of the other things, you know, we recovered. And one of those was that, uh, you know, people could receive the sacrament not just if they were dying, you know, that if they were, if they were seriously sick, they could receive it. And they could receive it more than once. So a person, 
you know, if a person is going in for a surgery, they can be anointed. If they're, if, they're, if they're very ill, they can be anointed. And then if they recover and then they get ill again, they can be anointed again. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't anoint somebody normally again for the same illness. It needs to be sort of, they're sick, they recover, then they get sick again, then you anoint them. Yes. What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 so some of what you're saying is is right and some of it's not. So let me clarify what's not and what's because I think you bring up some really good points, namely that our illness is not merely, you know, to be sick. I mean, somebody their psychological illness, they can be anointed for, you know, severe emotional distress. I mean, which would kind of fall into that category technically. But but uh, just the fact that we're sinners. Remember that each of the sacraments do different things. So the fact that somebody is a sinner, we wouldn't connect that then with the sacrament of anointing. We would say go to confession. But if you, if you are suffering from a particular malady, you know, a physical, a physical illness or a mental illness or something like that, um, then we would say this is the sacrament that has a particular grace for that. But just for being a sinner, no, you wouldn't just be anointed just because you're a sinner. And the church is very clear about that. You actually have to be... What's that? Right. I understand what you're saying. That, yeah, but that's not how the church sees it. So, sinners are sick people. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, in one sense, yeah, we're all infected by original sin, and we all have, you know, a darkened intellect and a weakened will, and so, part, you know, particular sins are a sign. You know, they're a symptom of that sort of original you know, sickness that we all have. That's true, but the, the reason why the church has seven sacraments is because there are, there are sacraments for, and, and two particular sacraments for healing is because they're different, okay? And so the church will say, if, we have a, if you have a healing mass, for instance, or um, now you can, you know, people can, people can pray over others and they can anoint them with even blessed oil, but it's not the sacrament because they can't administer the sacrament. But if you have a, a communal celebration of the anointing of the sick, um, then what should happen is it should be explained to people that this is not for just having committed sins. If, if you've just committed sins, that's for the sacrament of reconciliation. This is for physical or psychological mental illness well, only. I know you want to win the. I know you want to win the argument, but it doesn't. It doesn't matter because the church is again really, really clear that the the spiritual illness is reconciliation, and the physical or psychological illness that's anointing of the sick. So I don't necessarily disagree with you. I'm just saying that the. No. No. No, don't. I just said don't do that. You can't do that. So if somebody came to me, okay, let's, let's put it practically. All right. If somebody came to me and they said, Father, I'm a grievous sinner. I keep committing these sins. I believe it's some kind of spiritual sickness. I would say go to confession. Well, I've already done that. Then you're, you're fine. Well, but I still keep, okay, well, then let's do a prayer of deliverance. You know, let's do that. Well, what about anointing the sick? No. Are you sick? I think that's a really good point, though. I mean, that's the point I think is really important, is that the, the um, yeah, and, and I, I appreciate that, because, like, but, but for a spiritual sickness, we wouldn't really do anointing of the sick. We would do it for psychological illness or, or physical illness. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, yeah. Yeah, if it's severe, I mean, you know, some people can go through really severe de de uh, bouts of depression, right. and that would be a really good time for them to be anointed. Right. I think that's a, that's a very good point. Um, 
And so a lot of people aren't sure. And, and I know that I've been to some of those where they don't really explain it. And they're just like, everybody get anointed. Well, the, the church is very clear that it needs to be a serious illness. But it can be more than physical. You know, it can be, it can be emotional or psychological. Yeah. Um, but for a spiritual thing, that usually the church doesn't apply the sacrament of anointing for that. Um, yeah, that would be more deliverance. Yeah, um, th- which is why we have those other rituals, like for spiritual warfare and, you know. Um, now, one of the interesting things is that the, the sacrament is connected to the forgiveness of sins. But if you read the catechism, it doesn't really talk about it, which I think is fantastically interesting because it seems to me to be a, a huge sort of lacuna, lacuna. You know, it's, it's a huge gap um, because certainly within the tradition, there's the understanding that if, if a person is on their deathbed or they, they're, or let's say they're, they're, in a, they're in a state, maybe they're not in their deathbed, but they're in a state in which they're unable to confess their sins, you know, let's say they, they, they no longer, they at this time don't have the ability to communicate um, and they're going to be going into surgery. You anoint them, the presumption is if they're sorry for their sins, you know, internally, they're forgiven of their sins, um, which is why, you know, deacons, you know, et cetera, can't do it. But I couldn't find a single mention of it in here, which is really interesting. Um Except for at the at the very very beginning. Um, however, right. Is sorry for their sin. Am I presuming that when I'm no? Um, which is probably why the church doesn't specify exactly what happens as far as. But we can. But we can, we can piece it together what happens based upon all of the other theology. So um, I don't know subjectively in their person how sorry they are. And I don't even know the condition of their mind or their ability, if, if they're unconscious, if they're even able to manifest any kind of repentance. I don't know. But, um, but the, the anointing itself... <laughs> It may affect something physically, but it's really meant to, to help in the healing of, of you know, their, their emotions and, and you know, spiritual healing insofar as bringing them peace, you know, uniting their sufferings with Christ. But also the presumption is that their, their, uh, their sins are, are forgiven if they're sorry for them. Now, if they recover, if they recover and they're fine, um, then the same thing would presumably apply with this, right, with the communal absolution. So they were, they were forgiven of their sins, but the church maintains, like with, with, uh, with, with communal absolution, that uh, a person, if they survive whatever the, the problem is, they need to still tell their sins to the priest, even though they've been forgiven. Oh, okay. And I didn't, yeah. I wasn't aware of what he was talking about, but right. probably what he was doing. Yeah, could be. Um, so the, you know, but if a person doesn't recover, then, you know, we're just presuming that the grace that is given is going to help them in, in whatever they, they need. Um, some, some good things to know about anointing of the sick. Um, if, if you or a loved one you know, um, if, something, if something happens and, and things look rather grim, call the priest sooner than later. Don't wait until you think it's the end. This happens a lot. Mom goes into the hospital. She's been there for three days. Um, everyone's hoping for the best. And then she, you know, 
then they realize the best is not going to happen, or maybe it is, but she's going to die. Then they call the priest at 3 a.m. Call us right away. Just call us right away. And then, because then we'll ask, well, what's the situation? And then, you know, we can kind of plan to get there and, and everything. Plus, then she gets anointed, or he gets anointed right away, and then has whatever helps they need, you know, by virtue of grace to assist them. They can be anointed at any time. Yes? We have an emergency line. So if you, the question is, how does a person get a hold of a priest? So if you call the, the main line, there's, um, the message says, um, I had to buy one of these because it wasn't an emergency line, but every, every parish is supposed to have an emergency line. So I have a, I have a separate cell phone. And when you call the parish, uh, it says if, if you're in, you know, if somebody's in danger of death, for an emergency, you know, obviously, if somebody's dying, actively dying, call this number. And then, you know, I have the phone over at the rectory. They call the number. And then, uh, yeah, that actually happened. That actually happened just a couple weeks ago. And I was in the midst of St. Anne's and, and coming here. And, and Father Dan, they called Father Dan and Flagstaff. And he was able to get out there, thank goodness. Because um, there's a block of about three hours where I'm not, I can't obviously get anywhere. So, so you just called the main office here. Right? Yeah, yeah. Call the main office here, and most every it's a it's a rule for the diocese that every parish is supposed to have something like that. <clears throat> you know, in other parishes, they might have an answering service that then calls, um, other, or they may have you know push push seven if this is an emergency, and then it rings to a particular phone. We don't have that kind of complex phone system. Yeah. Now. You will find that some parishes don't have it, which is breaking the rules, but, you know, that's, that's on that priest. But here, that's how you would do it. So if you need to get a hold of me, that's, that's the deal. And then, when you, and then when you call the cell phone, there's this long message explaining what it's for. Because people will call that line asking for food and asking for all kinds of stuff. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a onerous message saying this is for if somebody is dying if you're sick right now dying it's not for food it's not for money and so i hardly all kinds of people call and never leave a message because once they sit through that they're like oh i get it yeah um yeah so so the you know the anointing of the sick just like uh, you know, penance, they're both meant to be sacraments of healing. And that doesn't mean, it, it really doesn't mean, to Petra's point, it really doesn't mean physical healing at all. Um, it may help with that. I mean, God can always intervene in the, in the physical world if he chooses to, but really it's, it's for the, you know, peace of soul. And, you know, when people are, it's horrible. If you've ever been in a been ill in a, in a in a hospital and in a bed and not knowing what's going on or if you've had a loved one you know how difficult that time is and so to call the priest to come in and say some prayers with you and anoint your loved one I mean it, it is a moment of grace you know it's a really good thing to do um, so okay the end